This audio is from the Axis Church and is from our sermon series, The Gospel of Matthew, Following the Unexpected King. For more information about the Axis Church or its mission in Nashville, Tennessee, go to theaxischurch.org. Jesus, thank you for being obedient to the Father. Father God, thank you for being so uh, filled with love for us as we are such dead haters of you. Lord, thank you for that radical grace and that radically undeserved mercy. Holy Spirit, thank you for, for coming into the life of the church, coming to the life of the Christians. And I ask that you do that even more so today for those who, Lord, uh, don't believe in you. Would you allow us all to see you and hear you for who you really are? Would we truly hear what you're saying Lord, I truly believe that you are going to move amongst us today. I pray that I would do nothing to hinder that and everything to help that. Lord, help distractions in this room to cease as we unpack such marvelous, earth-changing, eternity-shaping truths this morning. God, do it. Just flood us with your mercy Would your spirit just be so evident among us? God, be with us all. Please, Jesus, help us this morning. We're sitting before you asking you to teach us and to inform us. Help us stop bringing answers and throwing things back. But let us just listen to you this morning. Inform our ignorance. Love our hurts. Change us in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the context of this passage here in Matthew. Uh, Renee read it, Matthew 11.1, 1, uh, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples and sending them on mission to spread his fame and his message, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. But then he's confronted by the disciples of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is in prison awaiting his execution, and he had disciples just like Jesus has disciples. John was the forerunner of the ministry of Jesus, as we're going to get into a little bit this morning. He sends his disciples with one big question, though I'm sure there there were more. This is the one that's recorded, is, are you the one, or should we wait for another one? And Jesus essentially says, yes, I'm the Messiah, I am the one. And now Jesus is transitioning his focus from the disciples of John the Baptist to the skepticism of the crowd. And the reason, I believe, why Jesus addresses the crowd in regards to the identity of John is because they were using the imprisonment of John as yet another reason to discredit Jesus as the real promised Messiah so that they could kind of just dismiss him and move on. Once again, remember that the people were waiting on and expecting a political force, a political king who would come and liberate and lead the people of Israel to freedom and prominence. So that's their paradigm. Again, that's why we entitled this Following the Unexpected King, because Jesus was not the king that they were expecting. They were wanting a king and expecting a king that would rid Israel of all its enemies, And make them the force, the nation of all the earth. 
So to point out the obvious here, Jesus' main representative, his main promoter, um, his, his voice was John the Baptist, and he's in prison awaiting his execution. So the thought is, if Jesus is the one, why should we think that he is if, if he can't liberate his own sidekick? How could he free a nation and liberate a nation if, if he can't free the most important person in regards to his ministry? So Jesus responds that he is the one to John's disciples, and they move on. Now let's follow here in verse 7 of chapter 11. John's followers leave, and all right, so as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Three big questions here, all to point out the same thing. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. And John was in the wilderness, okay, wearing camel's hair, eating locust and honey, not royalty, okay? Um, verse 9, what then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes. Yes, you did. And I'll tell you, more than a prophet. This one, this, this prophet, this is of whom it was written, and this goes back to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your, your way before you. So what were you expecting John the Baptist to be? What were you expecting John the Baptist to do? John isn't this reed shaken by the wind, this fickle, indecisive, uh, let me think about it type of man. He's not a soft clothing wearing man. He's not tender. He's not indecisive. He's a prophet. He's been sent by God to be a man of God and the voice of God. He's a type of Elijah. Now, in the Old Testament, Elijah was this prophet of God back in the ninth century BC who was a very rugged man, much like John. And Elijah was the forerunner of a magnificent, uh, magnificent ministry of a man named Elisha. So Elijah was taken up to, to heaven in this flaming chariot and, and just through, through the tradition of the Jewish faith had become a hero in the eyes of the Jewish people. And so John the Baptist, being a rugged man, is also a forerunner announcing the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah. He's his promoter, if you will. And John himself isn't a political leader who's, who's tossed to and fro. He's not a weak man. He's not a non-opinionated man. He's a prophet. And he's one who prophesied so much so, so boldly, so clearly, that he was in prison for it. He wasn't a man who was manipulated by the crowd or opinion polls. He stood and he spoke boldly, empowered by the very Spirit of God, speaking the truth of God for people to hear it, regardless of what others thought. And this is what led to his arrest and his imprisonment. And actually, what leads to his death, and this is pretty cool, like just a little fact that we'll get to eventually, but he's in prison Herod is the one who's over the, the, the castle, the, the prison that he's in, and over the region. Herod has a girlfriend who has a daughter. Herod gets word from his girlfriend that the daughter is going to want the head of John the Baptist, so Herod gives it to him because John the Baptist kept on prophesying in prison that, the, that Herod was wrong and sinful for wanting to marry another man's wife 
and married this lady who he was living with. He was just from prison, get that, from prison he's preaching and teaching against Herod and he won't shut up about it and so he demands, she demands his head on a platter and that's ultimately how John the Baptist dies because he keeps preaching hard truth to people even in prison. So clearly he did not care what other people thought. Clearly he was a voice of God speaking the truth of God with the power of God, which is what prophets did and prophets all throughout the Old Testament and even modern-day men of God and women of God who've suffered great persecution are destroyed, persecuted, and hurt and harmed, murdered because of their faith in Jesus and their faith in God to speak the truth of God and the power of God. And we're going to get to that violent force and that persecution here today in our text. So verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those who are born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet... The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So the value here of those people in the kingdom is remarkable. As those who are cherished by God, redeemed by him. And it's these redeemed, born again, reborn people that are better than those who are greatest that are simply born of the earth. This is speaking of the citizens of the kingdom in heaven and paradise with God. And what Jesus is doing here is he, he's indicating that, that John was the most important person who had lived up until this point as a very, very um, significant character in the grand story of redemption. Yet even the most famous, prominent person on earth still falls so short from the glory given to everyone who enters heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. And then we have verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. The kingdom and its citizens have suffered and will suffer at the hands of violent people who try to prevent or assume God's rule. And right here, Jesus is pointing to the hostility that existed and was growing between the Jewish leaders and the kingdom that Jesus was inaugurating. And proof of this, of course, is clearly seen that John is going to be beheaded and Jesus will be brutally beaten and crucified. This is the force, this is the violence that Jesus is speaking of. Verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, if, if you're willing to trust me, he is Elijah who is to come. Again, Elijah brought the way for the ministry of Elisha. And John the Baptist is a type of Elijah who was sent by God to pull back the curtain on the main attraction, on, on the big deal, on the king of kings, that's Jesus. And it's as if he's saying, if, you, if you're willing to trust me, I am the Messiah. And if you're willing to trust me, God sent John, the Elijah figure that was promised to come before the Messiah. If you're willing to trust me, if you'll receive my words, which leads to 15 where he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And in the original language, that let is a must. So, so he who has ears to hear, he must hear what's being spoken here. Don't miss this. It's as if Jesus is saying, hey, listen, listen to this. Don't miss it. Trust me. John is the one promised. I am the one promised. But they miss it, and he proves it here. 
in these final verses for today. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. The, the flute was a wedding instrument. The dirge was a funeral instrument. We played the flute, and you didn't celebrate. You didn't dance. You didn't rejoice. We're playing the dirge, but you're not mourning. You're not weeping. You're not crying. You're not doing what it is that we want you to do. You're not doing what it is that we expect you to do. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and yet they say, speaking to those in the crowd, you say, he has a demon. And the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, he came eating and drinking, and yet you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Here, Jesus is growing more and more disturbed with these Pharisees. He's telling them point blank, looking them in the eyes, really the eyes of their heart. He's looking at them and saying that he is the one that they've been looking for. And yet their religious tradition and their self-righteousness and their hypocrisy is blinding them from seeing him. Here, Jesus is comparing his audience to little children who are playing patty cake while the promised Messiah is there to be known and realized and worshipped. They're totally missing it. This is very strong language. This is very insulting to have these people addressed as children. A, a better example for, for their taste would be, you are like kings and princes who, and they'd be like, okay, I'm with you there, but you are like children playing little instruments, wanting their little friends to play along with them. You're wanting me to do what it is that, that you think is best and what you want me to do, and I'm not doing it. Essentially, Jesus is there providing a feast of steak and telling them that they can eat and be satisfied while they're over there playing with their mud pies and eating them. And talking about how ridiculous it is for anyone to talk about steak when they have such a feast of dirt. Jesus is doing work here. Man, he is, he is lifting some weight here. He is chopping away as he's confronting these people with very hard truth. He's pressing into their identity and prodding around, trying to get at them, trying to find a way that would wake them up to the truth of his words and his mission. He's working. He's chopping. He's swinging away. And yet his audience is in effect saying, be who we expected you to be. Do what we want you to do. We see all these things that point to the fact that you're the Messiah, but you're not holistically what we were expecting. And we're caught in a tension. Like, there, there's just so much about you that's, that's tender and merciful and compassionate and slow to anger, and yet you're, you're not the political force. We want you to be the political force. We want you to tell everybody to get out that's not Jews, to, to get out that, to the people who aren't as good as we are. Bring justice, and, but let us define justice. Be good, but let us define what is good. Be wisdom, but let us tell you what wisdom is and live according to what we think you should do. 
You aren't a puppet, but we want, we want to be able to control you. We want, we want you to be our puppet. We want you to perform for us. We're pulling all the strings, but you're not moving the way that we want you to move. You know what? We'll accept you if you become like the Messiah that we want, like the one that we are expecting. Essentially, these Pharisees are simply ignoring the message and the preaching of John and completely ignoring the message and the preaching of Jesus. They hear and they see John and they think, oh, he must be demon possessed. They hear and they see Jesus and they think, oh, he must be a drunkard, a bum, because he's out here hanging with notorious sinners and outcasts in society. He can't be the Messiah. The Messiah would not go hang out with such people. Not our Messiah. Not the one that we think is coming. And Jesus says, wisdom is justified by our deeds. This means at least two things. One, that wisdom, Jesus is wisdom personified. That he is wisdom in the flesh. The second thing is as the story rolls on, all will see that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. This is the word justification. This justification, it's not the sort of justification that we preach every Sunday. The justification that is the result of Jesus' saving work on our behalf. That's not what this particular Uh, the way it's being used here. This is a way of Jesus saying, I will be proven true. Mark my words. I will live up to all that I say. My actions will not lie. Rather, they will prove that I am the Messiah. Wisdom is what comes from the mouth of John and what comes from the mouth of Jesus, true wisdom. And the Pharisees are fools for hearing John and Jesus and not receiving their message. They're not wise. These Pharisees and self-righteous men and women, they're not wise. You see, in thinking and acting and speaking that they are wiser and that they know more than Jesus and John, they're making themselves out to be fools. They can't see the truth and they can't hear the wisdom that's in the mouth and the words of Jesus and John. Years later, the Apostle Paul, after he was radically changed by Jesus, he records in 1 Corinthians 1 these words. And this kind of lets you in on what's going on between the Jews and Jesus. For the word of the cross is folly, ridiculousness, absurdities to those who are perishing, to those who do not believe. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews, they demand a signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, and it is a stumbling block to Jews, and it's folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's the dynamic. That's the dilemma between the Jews here and Jesus. 
They were considering his words and thinking, ridiculous, can't be. Those don't reconcile. Because of your staunch unbelief and your resistance to even lean in a little bit and to press in and consider a little bit more the message of Jesus, you resort to him being a glutton or a demon and you push back, completely missing the kingdom that you are so certain to be a part of. Jesus is essentially saying, see your blindness. Hear your deafness. You're, you're looking for any and every excuse to not believe me. Look for reasons to believe. Stop looking for reasons to not believe. You missed John. He's in prison. And he was the very forerunner of my ministry. You're missing me, Jesus, the Messiah of the promised kingdom. So you're missing the kingdom. See what you're doing. Notice what you're doing. How many people in Nashville, Tennessee, how many people even in our building today are in a similar place in their heart before Jesus? Because of such unbelief and resistance to even press in and consider more and more the message of Jesus, there tends to be a resorting of considering him to be a judgmental jerk who just loved hating people. Yet you don't see that in Scripture. You don't see this in Scripture. Even this Looking these haters and skeptics in the eyes is such radical mercy to look at people who are judging you and resisting you and stiff-arming you and say, hey, please hear this. If you've got ears, hear. Please hear. Don't miss this. It's not judgmental. But if we resort to Jesus being a judgmental jerk who hated people, then we can clear our conscience and dismiss the Bible and we can move on from Jesus. But I wonder how things would be different if rather than looking for every single reason to discredit and disbelieve Jesus, you started looking for reasons to believe. Look for reasons to believe rather than, than trying to come up with more reasons to not believe. I believe that things would change drastically if the stones that you try throwing at Jesus, you take and begin trying to build something. Anyone can blow up something. Anyone can deconstruct something, but rather do the hard mental work of digging in Scripture and start building something. It's as if people want to disprove the real Jesus and create another Jesus, one that is a jerk, but not the real Jesus who came to love and heal and forgive and be compassionate and merciful you're saying no to a fake Jesus, perhaps. A Jesus that he himself would say no to. Uh, the Jesus that, that John the Baptist would say no to. You're pushing back from the very thing that could complete you. You're totally missing the kingdom. And you're missing out on something that would radically change your life. And something that will bring such meaning and clarity to your world. My prayer leading up to today is that we would all see our blindness and hear our deafness and be aware of our tendency to throw stones rather than try to build something. 
and saying no to a phony jerk Jesus, you're missing out on the real Jesus and you're missing, you're missing out on the kingdom over a misconception of the king. Who is Jesus? What are you expecting in a savior? What are you looking for? What are you looking for and expecting in a redeemer? One who says that you're okay, no matter what state you're in? One who will never change you? Or speak truth to recorrect or or realign? One who would never ask anything of you? Are you looking for a savior who couldn't care less about how you live? One who could have no standards and never challenge your heart or your motive? One who could never trump your plans and lead you to do something else. Perhaps we're looking more for a cosmic Santa Claus who will never tell us no and only make our dreams come true. This is the Jesus the Pharisees were really expecting. And my fear is this is the Jesus that we're expecting. The real Jesus has proven that he loves us and he's proven that he cares for us. The real Jesus has proven that he is good and he is trustworthy through the cross. And he's proven that he is God through his resurrection from the grave and from death. A Jesus that can't demand anything of you. A Jesus that can't change any of your plans and alter any of your dreams is not an accurate understanding of the real Jesus, of King Jesus of Savior Jesus. Rather, it's a a phony, domesticated, imaginative Jesus and a Jesus that can't ask anything of you and demand anything from you is certainly not one that can save you. A Jesus that cannot demand anything of you is not the real Jesus. And I know our postmodern culture, whatever we are, post-postmodern, whatever term we want to give our brilliant selves, it's, it's... It doesn't like the idea of a God that can tell us something that's right and wrong and demand that we change. We want to decide for ourselves. We know that we're in a series called Following the Unexpected King, but I want you to know it's more than a trivial, haphazard sermon title to a series. This is a real danger, a very real danger for all of us in this room. Christians miss Jesus too. We miss Jesus daily, hourly. And we must repent and turn to the real Jesus, trusting him more and more each moment. Today, here, the real Jesus is calling for us to follow him and live lives where every decision that is made is set before him in submission and where you joyfully invite him to change anything in your world at any given moment, even if it doesn't make sense, even if it hurts, trusting that he sees things that we cannot and understands things that we cannot grasp. For Christians, your heart should be in a place where you see the radical love of Jesus on the cross and you embrace the fact that Jesus is creator God in the flesh and king of all kings. And then this will bring us to a place of absolute submission where he has the right to require our full allegiance and to trump anything at any given moment. But is this the Jesus that we worship? Is this the Jesus that when we daydream that that we think of? Does he have that type of supremacy in our life. Who do you say that Jesus is? 
Is Jesus the king? Many were disappointed by Jesus. Many were disappointed by John. They all have certain understandings of what Jesus, the Messiah, was to be. What Jesus are you expecting? One who can heal you physically? One who can give you money? One who can make all your dreams come true? What Jesus are you expecting for, expecting on, longing for, waiting on? Is Jesus the end? Is he the one so that we can stop searching? Is he the place where our soul can find true comfort and rest and completeness? Or is he just the means to our end? He's just the peace that's going to give us what we want in life. You know, I'm reading, I'm going to church, I'm journaling, I'm taking sermon notes, I'm working hard, I'm listening to podcasts, I'm giving in the offering, I'm praying every day, I'm fasting, yet God isn't giving me the spouse that I want, the home that I want, the job that I want, the health that I want, the friends that I want. He's not my genie, he's not my puppet. And I want to be my puppet. I'm playing the flute and he's not dancing. I'm playing the dirge and he's not mourning. Jesus is God. Jesus is God in the flesh. And Jesus was sent into human history to take care of our greatest problem and our greatest need. And that is the problem of sin. And he came as a sacrificial lamb who would be the sacrifice of all sacrifices, the final sacrifice. He came as someone who was full, completely topped off with grace and truth, with power and with poise. Jesus is the door to God, declaring himself as the only way to the Father, the only way to peace with God, the only way to be the means of approaching God as friend where you see the creator as father, as Abba, as daddy. He took our sin upon himself. He received hostility from God that we deserve for our sin. And this results in those who trust in Jesus having peace with God and restored, real, vibrant relationship with God, the creator of all things. Through the goodness of Jesus, we're made good enough in the eyes of God. Jesus lived perfectly for us as our representative. He always obeyed God, perfectly and always our sufficient representative before the eyes of God. He was our substitute. He was our wrath bearer. He was our wrath absorber, receiving the judgment that we deserve, allowing us to go free as he pays the penalty for our sins. Oh, how Jesus understood sorrow and grief and pain. The depth of his compassion and his sympathy we cannot relate with. It is so vast, so deep. Jesus knew what it was like to experience being stabbed in the back and abandoned. He knew what it was like to cry and experience heartache. Jesus was hungry. He was weary. He was homeless, he was forsaken, he was betrayed, he was whipped, he was mocked, and he was crucified on a criminal's cross. The most perfect person was crucified on a criminal's cross. And Jesus was all of this, and he experienced all of this for you. He did it for you. He did this so that you could experience joy and gladness, peace and love forever. 
May this produce in us a spirit of freedom and gratitude rather than fear and shame. This is our Jesus. This is the real Jesus. This Jesus is the rest giver and the guilt taker. How can we ever adequately find words to thank Jesus enough for his uniquely perfect life and his uniquely perfect death on our behalf? This is absurd. This is ridiculous. The grace that is found in Jesus, the love that's found in Jesus, the compassion that's found in Jesus, the work ethic to do whatever it takes to win you as friend and as child, son, and daughter in whom he's well pleased. The work ethic that Jesus provides in doing this heavy lifting for us. Jesus is our blessed hope and he will return to receive us and not judge us for those who believe in him because you see he was judged already for us. My dear friends and family, please do not miss the real Jesus. Not only am I concerned that people are missing the real Jesus, I'm afraid that people have accepted a phony Jesus. Please make sure that you're worshiping the real Jesus. Search your hearts in regards to what you're expecting Jesus to be and what you're expecting Jesus to do for you. Consider his faithfulness in your life. Look back and see his faithfulness to you through the months and the years. This is not meant to produce skepticism, but it's meant to produce strength in your faith and your resolve in who Jesus really is. May God lead us to put down our stiff arms and open them wide to accept the goodness and the love of the real Jesus. Let me pray for us today. Jesus, thank you for doing these things for us. Lord, thank you that you came, Lord, to be condemned for us so that we can be pronounced innocent and guiltless and free. Lord, of course, my prayer is that we would see you for who you really are and worship you for who you really are and that we'll be very aware of who we are. Lord, would you give us huge clear eyes to see the depths of who we are. Lord, give us very sensitive ears to hear what it is that you're saying to our hearts today. Lord, would you lead us and guide us to repentance and through faith in you. Lord, allow us to start building something in regards to our faith in you. Holy Spirit, move and change us Save people, redeem people, allow them to see their worth and their value as they look at the cross and they see what you've done for them to gain them. Lord, we await your appearance and we can't wait to be with you forever. May we all be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.